0: Obadiah is where we're headed. Obadiah. If you've got your Bibles, head over to the book of Obadiah. If you need a Bible by chance, there's about a half dozen over here, Well, probably a dozen on the shelf. So feel free to avail yourselves of those. Those are free for our usage. All right, Obadiah, tonight our goal, we've worked through um, several, several of the verses already. We've made it down through verse 10. So tonight our goal, Lord willing, is to work through verse 10. We'll reiterate what we learned there, and we'll get 11, 12, 13, and 14. So we'll cover four whole verses at rapid pace, I know. All right, so that's our goal. That is our goal, but before we start into it, anyone have something that you have... Learned or remembered or that stood out to you from the book of Obadiah so far? Miss Brenda? They thought they could not be touched. They thought hmm. they were so fortified
1: like, uh, so, and so strong that they weren't able to, to be created to
0: do it. They thought it showed them that you could do anything. Yeah. But Edom. Yeah, they thought they were untouchable, that they lived in too fortified of a place to have any. Enemy prevail against them, but God showed them otherwise. What else has stood out to you from the book? Anything else? It doesn't have to be anything profound. It can be simple, too. Adrian? That God is just,
1: even in the long term, rather than short term. Because most of us think in short term, right? But God, even in the long term, will show justice.
0: It's good. God's justice is long term. Sometimes in the short term we miss it. It's good. Amen.
1: Isaac? And God is also is also merciful just because just because um, just because he warns nations some nations basically of his destruction. Yeah. Just like kind of in like Jonah, like basically just like God, he warns People of Nineveh, but mm-hmm. then to basically, and, and basically then Nineveh repented, yeah. and then they were saved. So, probably the same thing might have happened
0: It's good. The to yeah. So, God's in his justice, he's also merciful, and that he gives a, an advanced warning. Like the prophet Jonah goes to the pagan um, city of Nineveh, but they repent. And so, they God postpones the judgment that's coming for them. What if Edom had repented? Well, God probably would have been merciful and given them time as well. It's good. Amen. Anything else stand out to you? Elise? The writer would have no background. It's good. Yeah, we don't know very much at all about Obadiah, just what his name means. Obadiah, which means, anybody? Servant. That's right. Yeah, servant of Yahweh, servant of the Lord. It's good. Amen. Well, to whom was the book written? Who is our audience? Do you remember? The nation of Edom. Is that what you're going to say, John? Yeah, Esau. Exactly. Esau, the nation of Edom. So this is how I always remember it. Visuals help me. So when I think of the O in Obadiah, I try to write Edom across the top, and it helps me remember. What? That's right. Yeah. Hey, Oh, they're cracking me up. All right, so tonight let's get into the text. Here's, here's the big picture of the book. We are still under number one tonight. We're finishing it, and then we'll get into the second portion of the book next week, Lord willing. Um, we're finishing out God's vengeance on Esau, this judgment that's coming upon them. Um, the last several weeks, we have looked at the sentence, the, the destruction that Edom has incurred, the judgment, what is actually going to happen. But then, tonight, we're looking at the evidence, Edom's crimes. So let's start out, let's read the text. So if you have your Bibles, Obadiah, um, we'll read verses 1 through 15. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made you small among the nations, or the heathen. You are greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, who says in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though you exalt yourself as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, fence, or from there will I bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, how are you cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of your confederacy have brought you even to the border. The men who are at peace with you have deceived you and prevailed against you. They who eat your bread have laid a wound under you. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the Mount of Esau? And your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed, to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have looked on the day of your brother, in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, you should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. So there's our text at hand. Um, I meant to pass these out before, but I'll just let you pass them now. Here's a little graphic that... Can I keep one of those? Forgive me. Here's a little graphic that maybe will help us visualize this. Just put this, put this next to you. We're going to talk about verses 10 and 11 for a moment, and then we'll. this will be helpful, I think, for verses 12 through 14. So... Our outline, we've talked through, we're finishing out God's vengeance on Esau, and it's been divided um, with the sentence, and now God gives the evidence. And that's interesting, because typically in prophecies of judgment, as well as if you think about a courtroom, what comes first, the verdict or the evidence? Well, of course, the evidence comes first. The evidence comes first, and then the verdict. But God reverses those, Obadiah reverses those in this book, and it has a dramatic effect um, because he gives us the judgment coming on Edom. In other words, total destruction, a judgment very similar to the judgment they participated in against the nation of Israel. But then, our verses 10 through 14, God is piling up the evidence, the crimes that Esau had committed. So here's our outline for tonight. Speaking of Esau's crimes, first of all, verse 10 gives us a summary of Esau's crimes. Number two, in verse 11, is the timing of Esau's crimes. When did Esau commit these crimes for which he he has future judgment coming? And then finally, the third is the specifics uh, of Esau's crimes. The specifics of Esau's crimes. And Obadiah is going to list out eight crimes committed by the nation of Edom. So with that in mind then, as we work down through this, um, I just want to draw one thing out to your attention. Notice, um, well, we talked about it, verse 10. First of all, let's start with that. The summary of Esau's crimes. So we have two crimes that are general crimes that verse 10 summarizes for us. The first is at the very end of verse 9. It says, by slaughter. That's murder. Okay, so there's our first crime. Remember that? And then what's the second crime in verse 10? Esau committed. Anybody remember? Lucas? Exactly. Violence against Jacob. And so then what's going to happen? He's given us this general summary of Esau's crimes, murder and violence. And then in verses 12 through 14, Obadiah is going to list off eight specifics of their crimes. He's going to flesh out these generals. Does that make sense? Oh, good. Well, at least one person nodded their head. Does it make sense? Yeah. Good. Okay, good. All right. So that's verse 10. We talked about that for a while last week. Um, but then look at verse 11. This is the timing of Esau's crimes. When did Esau, and remember, I keep saying Esau because that's what Obadiah does. He uses Esau for the most part. Remember, what's the history there? Whose brother was Esau? Who was his brother? Jacob. Jacob. So remember that way back in Genesis. Abraham has a son who's named Isaac. And then Isaac and Rebekah, they have two kids. They're twins. Esau is the elder. Jacob is the younger. But God foretold that the younger, Jacob, would serve the elder. Sorry. I switched it around. I've done that several times today. Watch me close. The elder will serve the younger. There we go. Keep me straight. That's right. Just testing you. (laughs) Stay. Oh, good. So the question is, when did Esau commit these crimes? And verse 11 gives us the picture. First off, he uses this word, day. He says, in the day that you stood on the other side. Uh, Remember, this word, it's already been used once. Does anybody remember where was the word day used before verse 11? Verse 8. Verse 8. That's where God says, shall I not in that day, says the Lord, he's speaking to Edom, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of the Mount of Esau. So that day, in verse 8, is referring to a future day when Edom is going to be facing judgment. Now, in verses 11 through 14, it's a key word, but it's referring to a different day. He says, in the day that you stood... Past past tense, in the day that you stood on the other side, or stood aloof. This day is referring to the day of Jacob. So the day of Edom, or the day of Esau, was the day of their judgment. Now he's referring to the day of Jacob, a day of judgment that's already passed, when Babylon came and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 BC. Remember that? So he's going to describe that day. He says, in the day that you stood on the other side... Well, what's that, what is that metaphor getting at? The day you stood on the other side. Does anyone have another translation that might help us there? The day you stood on the other side. The first line of verse 11. Zoe? That you stood aloof. aloof. Yeah, that's a good one. Anything else that gives insight there? What does it mean to stand aloof? Colton? Colton? Okay, stand on the opposite side. Like a spectator. Yeah, like a spectator. And not just any spectator, because some spectators are encouragers. You know, that's the mom at the soccer game who is just cheering her heart out. But then some spectators are critics. They stand aloof. Maybe you picture them. They've got their arms crossed. Hecklers. Hecklers. Yeah, they're the ones yelling at the refs. If you know what I mean, Colton.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, like a food critic. Okay, so this this idiom it can have two ideas. First off, it can mean standing by and watching indifferently. So picture that Jerusalem is in the middle of a violent destruction. And what does Edom do? They sit by and they watch and they're like, eh, I don't really care. They're indifferent. But the second aspect of it is like what we were just talking about. Spectators at a sporting event and they're cheering on the enemy team. That's like sitting in the home bleachers and cheering for the visiting team. You're going to get beat up. Yeah, you're going to get beat up. That's what Edom did. Do you see that? That's what it's getting at. Edom, they're sitting there watching their own brother Jacob get destroyed and they're sitting there... Rooting for the enemy. Yeah, exactly. And Psalm 137 actually says that. They say, raise it, raise it, raise the city. That means destroy it. They're cheering Babylon on. Isn't that just a powerful word picture that gives you an idea of exactly what Edom was doing? Their brother Jacob's facing sure demise and they sit there and root on the enemy. So he says, in the day that you stood on the other side, but just... Note that word "stood." Then look down to verse verse fourteen. Neither should you have stood in the crossway. We'll pick up the word there, but this forms a little inclusio. And some some literature nerd, help us out. What is an inclusio? I'm not making it up. I promise. Somebody did. Zoe. We said literature nerd. Well done, Zoe. It's the brackets. It's here's the way I like to describe it, because I pretend to like be a literature nerd, but I don't really know. I describe it as a sandwich. Okay, so the bread that is how you talk. the bread is here. He uses the word stood in the day that you stood on the other side, and then he comes back to it in verse 14. He says, Neither should you have stood in the crossway. Both places they're doing standing. And in the middle is the, is the meat and the cheese and the lettuce and the tomato of the sandwich. It's what actually happens while they're standing there. It's what they do. Does that make sense? So it's, it's a really cool literary device. Um, and at least Zoe likes inclusios. I do too. Well done, Zoe. So in inclusio, there you go. What? about
1: them,
0: Fair enough. Maybe you should go and research them. It's kind of a cool one. Okay, so, but then it says, in the day that you stood on the other side, and then it gives another description of that day. Remember, this is the day of Jacob, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem. Okay, so we have two things going on here. We've got two names that Obadiah gives to the enemies of Judah. What are the names or the titles he gives them. Those second two lines, line two and line three. Who carried away captive the forces of Jacob? If you're looking at me, you're not going to figure it out. Look down at your Bible. There you go, strangers. In the day, strangers, and then what's the second name? Call it out. Who entered into his gates? Foreigners. Mr. Peter's two for two. This is middle of verse eleven. Middle of verse eleven. In the day that strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates. So we've got strangers and foreigners. What's the picture we get from that? Who is the ones destroying Jerusalem? Colton? Yeah. Babylon. People from far away. They're strange people. They're foreigners. They don't belong here. They don't live here. They came from a faraway land. But then these strangers and foreigners, which we know from the rest of the context of Scripture, Babylon, they do three actions. What three actions do you see them doing? What do the strangers do? Colton? Um,
1: Cast lots.
0: Hmm? Yeah, so cast lots, that's the third one. What's numbers one and two? What do the strangers and the foreigners do? Ah, oh, the strangers—they carried away captive his forces. John, Zach, right. you got it. That's exactly it. Well done. Just this might help you—a tip when you're trying to do that. Just look for the verbs of the sentence—the action. That's the one you're looking for. Good work, you guys. I think we're making progress. So the strangers and the foreigners—they do three things. They carry away captive his forces. Um, this word forces, it's the same word that's translated wealth um, down, down in verse 13. We'll come to that in a minute, but it's the same word translated wealth. But it's the idea of carrying away captives. thats carrying away the people. They take them into captivity and take them back to their homeland. Does that make sense? So they take captives. Second, they enter into his gates. What is that getting at? What does it mean to enter into The gates of a city. Does Spring Creek have any gates on it? Mm -hmm. Isaac?
1: Mm True.
0: Exactly. It means to breach the gates to attack the city. Here's a picture that maybe gives us a little bit of a mindset of it. In antiquity... The safe cities were the ones with walls. The bigger and stronger the walls, the safer the city. But you have to have a way to let your citizens in and let your friends in, so they would build gates in the city walls. And so they could open the gates to let friends in and close the gates to keep foes out. Does that make sense? So go ahead, Colton. Also, reminds of the Crusaders
1: back then, they stuff like this too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it kind of does. It's um, It says the Damascus Gate is where this picture is taken from. So I don't know if it's a picture of old Jerusalem. You know, some of the archaeology is uncovered. It would be pretty amazing if a wall was... Are they? There you go. It says it's the Damascus Gate. So somebody can fact check us. But this at least gives you the picture. So an invading army, if the city closes itself up, there's only a few ways to defeat that city it's called besieging it so you got to either starve them out to where they starve to death or give up run out of food and water you have to figure out a way to break down the walls or you got to figure out a secret entrance or how to trick the army so like think of the trojan horse they disguise it themselves in the horse and they trick them into letting in this horse they think is a gift that's why they did it because unless you can get through the walls You can't defeat the city. Does that give you the picture? So that's what the metaphor means when it says you entered into his gates. Finally, we've got one third action they do. They cast lots for Jerusalem. You remember what happened when Jesus was hanging on the cross? What were the soldiers doing down at the base? Yeah, they were casting lots. It's similar to our um, idea of rolling the dice, they were trying to figure out who would get Jesus' clothing. That's what they do. They have all this spoil of war, all this loot, and they're casting lots for who's going to get this. Oh, that's a nice house. Oh, that's a nice horse. Oh, that's a big pot of gold. And they're casting lots. They're rolling the dice. Who gets that one? Do you see what they're doing? They're dividing the spoil of war. Okay. That's what the strangers and foreigners are doing. What was Edom doing at the beginning of verse 11? Uh Uh-huh. Nothing. They... They're standing there, exactly. They stood aloof, remember? But then, it says at the end of verse 11, something else Edom is doing. It says, even when they're doing all that, you were as one of them. You were like them. So where they were standing aloof, that's like a passive. They're like, I'm not going to get involved. But now, not only are they just watching, but they're participating. So then, verses 12 through 14 are going to give us the specifics of Esau's crimes, the specifics of Esau's crimes, and that's where the little handout comes in. I'm, I kind of am a visual learner sometimes, so if it doesn't help you, that's okay. It, you won't hurt my feelings, but this helped me visualize the information, so I thought I'd bring it to you. Um, why do we bring evidence in a court of law? Why does there have to be evidence given? Why can't we just Arbitrarily condemn people. Isaac?
1: It's just because you need evidence just basically just like um, If you just con- condemn anyone you want, then just um, just them, just like that person can condemn anyone that they want just because
0: they don't like them. hmm Yeah, it's not just. Exactly. Adrian? <laughs> That's exactly it. What requiring evidence in a court of law does is it helps us enact justice, meaning that the criminal gets punishment, but the person who maybe is um, unlawfully accused, maybe they're innocent, we make sure that unless there's enough evidence, we don't condemn an innocent person. That's why we need evidence, to establish the guilt or the innocence of the individual on trial. You following that? So by God's presenting evidence, the crimes of Esau, He is establishing their guilt. What it does is it highlights an attribute of God, namely his justice. God is a just God. He does not play favorites. Anyone who is a criminal who has committed crimes against God, we call them sin, they will not go unpunished. But God does not punish the innocent. Those who have done what is right, God does not punish them along with the guilty. Illustration. Remember back in the book of Genesis, three uh, travelers come to Abraham and they have dinner with him, and then two of them go on, and then the one we find out is God talking with Abraham, and he says he's going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember that? You remember that story? And Abraham, after he tells him that, remember Abraham's nephew Lot is living in the city of Sodom. And Abraham says, God, if I may speak with you, he says, if you can find 50 righteous people in the city, Will you preserve the city for 50? And God says, I will. If there's 50 righteous, I'll save the city. And then he talks them down, from, down to 40, then 30, then 20, and then 10. And God doesn't even find 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom. But in that conversation, Abraham's argument to God is, he says, shall not the, God of, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He says, that would be far from you, to destroy the innocent along with the guilty. Are you following that logic? So what we find in the book of Obadiah is the justice of God. He makes no mistakes in his judgment. There is no sin or crime that goes unpunished. At the same time, there's no innocent person who will suffer punishment. So God gives us eight reasons, eight crimes of Esau. And these establish God's justice in bringing judgment against Esau. Are you ready as we work through these? I find it interesting, once again, if you like literature, if you like observing the text, which I hope you do, even if you don't like literature as a class, the Bible is literature. So it's a good thing to at least like literature enough to read and study and think about the Bible. But you notice here, we've got eight rows I divide it out. Those are the eight crimes of Esau. But then there are four columns. That's because God, in his presentation of the crimes of Esau, he does it in what's called a formula. It's like a math equation. A plus B plus C plus D equals the crime. That's the formula he follows. There's four aspects to it. First of all, there's a prohibition. You should not, or you, you should not have, or do not That's the first piece. Then the second is the verb. So like 12a, reason number one, do not gloat. There's your verb. He says, do not, then the verb, then he says on the day. So taking that first example, do not gloat over the day of your brother. And then he finishes off the formula with a description of the day. Over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. So did you follow that formula? Do not, plus the verb, on the day, plus the description of the day. Follow that? So that's the formula that we can observe as we go through here. Okay, so verse 12. The first reason, the first crime of Esau. But you should not have looked on the day of your brother, in the day that he became a stranger. You should not have looked on the day of your brother. Um, This is a metaphor it's like looking intently. It's like staring at. It's gazing upon with ill intent. The metaphor means to gloat. It's to look on it with condemnation. So as Israel, as Judah, Jacob, Esau's brother, is being destroyed, Esau is looking at them. He's staring. He's gloating. Maybe a little bit of haughtiness, like, wow, haha, they're getting destroyed. God says, do not. But I find this interesting. The King James translation says you should not have, and it's putting it in the past tense saying what Esau should not have done. But it's really interesting. This particular way of construction, this Hebrew terminology, it's a command. It means do not gloat. Well, why would God be giving these eight commands to Esau if Esau already committed the crimes? Any thoughts on that? Mhm. Yeah, okay, they could have known better. Instruction was available. Also. Yeah, they had their conscience. They probably knew that murder was wrong. Just saying. Yep. It adds strength to the reasons, to the crimes, because it's a command. But what it also does is it serves as a reminder to anyone else who would consider treading the same path Esau already trod. Does that make sense? So it serves as a warning to future generations, to the nations. A warning. Don't be like Esau. Look at their destruction. So he says, do not gloat over the day of your brother. Why does he keep bringing up your brother, your brother, your brother? Isaac? Isaac?
1: Sibling Nations.
0: Yeah. Sibling because, Nations.
1: Because, just because their fathers were brothers, mm-hmm. it would kind of be like a relationship between two countries, like, say, like Norway and Sweden.
0: I'll yeah. Say for example. Yeah. They're both related countries, but they're both
1: different. And then they kind of work together.
0: It's good. Like Sibling Nations. Adrian? It makes it more personal. It does. Did you notice that? Instead of calling them Judah and Edom, he keeps calling them Jacob and Esau. It makes it personal. It's a familial attack. It's brother versus brother. Esau backstabs his own brother. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. In the day of your brother, in the day that he became a stranger, or the day of his misfortune is another way to translate that. Isn't that interesting? It says, in the day that he became a stranger. Who was it that attacked the city? that entered into their gates, that took captives away? It was the strangers. Remember that back in verse 11? Now Obadiah says the strangers attacked, and now Judah has become strangers. They've been taken away. They're no longer inhabiting their land. They're the foreigners now. That's a pretty powerful description. Reason number two, middle of verse 12. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Okay, you should not have rejoiced. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah. So now he calls them the nation name Judah, which remember we had two nations from Israel after King David, then came King Solomon. After Solomon, the nation split. Israel, the northern kingdom, was under the leadership of uh, Jeroboam and Judah, the southern kingdom, was under the leadership of King Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Remember that? Good. So Judah, he says, you should not have rejoiced, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Uh, what does it mean to rejoice over the children of, Ju- of Judah? Colton?
1: To, say to be excited over their
0: defeat. Exactly. It's to be excited over their defeat. There's a difference in rejoicing in your own victory Versus rejoicing in your enemy's defeat. There's a difference there. It's haughtiness. It's, it's pride. Proverbs 24, verses 17 through 18 actually says something about this. It says, Rejoice not when your own enemy falls, and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. So the picture we get there, the picture we get is, Proverbs says, Don't even rejoice when your own enemy gets defeated let alone Esau, how dare they rejoice when their own brother is defeated? Do you see that parallel? He says, neither should you have rejoiced in the day of their ruin. Um, Then reason number three, he boasted when Jacob fell. He boasted when Jacob fell. Neither should you have spoken, this is end of verse 12, neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of his distress. This is the idea of boasting, the idea of boasting, to speak proudly. It's a metaphor, it's actually literally to open one's mouth wide, or to enlarge your mouth. Isn't that a, an interesting picture for what boasting is? It's to open your mouth loud and sing your own praises. So while Jacob's being defeated, Esau is over here, and he is magnifying himself. He's saying, look at us. Jacob's being destroyed, but look at us, us powerful, good, upright nation. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Look at verse 13. Reason number four, you should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Who was it that was entering the gates back in verse 11? It was the foreigners. Now, not only did the foreigners enter into the gates, but Esau is hot on their heels, ready to participate in attacking Jerusalem. He says, you should not have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. But the gates of whom? Of my people. Do you see that verse 13 don't do not enter into the excuse me into the gate of my people God says why was it that Judah was being destroyed because of their sin against the Lord right it was their judgment but even in the midst of their own judgment God says I haven't forsaken they're still my people isn't that cool Think about Israel hearing this after their city just got destroyed and most of them are captive in Babylon. But then they hear the prophet Obadiah and he says, speaking to Edom, you should not have entered into the gate of my people. It's like, wow, God does still love us. He's still for us. Isn't that cool? Okay, Um, reason number five, he gloated over Jacob's calamity. Uh, Same thing, it reiterates reason number one. Then reason number six, Um, end of verse 13, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So not only does Esau follow Babylon in and help attack, but they start looting the city as well. They're stretching out their hands, taking the spoils of war, stealing the wealth of Judah. Reason number seven, beginning of verse 14, neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Wait a second, where did we see that word stand before or stood? Exactly. When Esau was standing by, they were standing aloof, watching as the foreigners attacked Jerusalem. Now, he says, neither should you have stood in the crossway, the crossroads. But this is an interesting one. And I, you notice I highlighted it in red. Obadiah departs from the formula. That last number, the fourth column to the right, it should be in the day of Jacob's something, like the day of his calamity. But instead, Obadiah says, Why were they standing at the crossroads? The crossroads are the escape routes. They stood there to cut off Jacob's fugitives, the refugees who were running. The survivors from the city, they run and they're seeking refuge. And Esau meets them at the crossing of the highways and they kill them. They are murdering the refugees. Finally, reason number eight, you should not have, neither should you have delivered up those of him that did remain in the day of distress. So they murder some of the refugees who escape, others of them, they take them captive and they deliver them up to Babylon, the ones who remain. Does that make sense? Did you follow those reasons down through there? Questions through there. We've got a couple more things I want to consider for a moment, but Anything to clarify of what we've walked through? Good. Okay. So if you've got your Bibles, go over to Proverbs chapter 3. While you're going there, a couple things to remind us over. Where's another place in the Bible that you can think of where we see a brother murdering brother? Cain and Abel. Well done. Cain and Abel. Remember that. Right after Cain has murdered Abel, he's hidden his brother in the field, he buries him, and God comes to Cain and he asks him a question. Remember, he says, where is your brother Abel? Well, what was Cain's response? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And that forever will ring down through history. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, what was the right answer to Cain's question? Yes, in fact, you are your brother's keeper. You should care about your brother's whereabouts, his welfare. You have a responsibility to your family. And just like Cain should have cared for Abel's well-being, so also Esau, when he says, well, am I my brother's keeper? Do I really have to step in when Babylon comes and attacks? Yes, they should have. Hmm. Okay. You could cross-reference. We won't read this, but you could cross-reference 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verses 4 through 7. It's the passage that talks about love. Love suffers long and is kind, does not envy. It talks about though how it does not rejoice in iniquity. You're good. Esau was rejoicing over the sin and the destruction of Judah. But then if you're in your Bible's Proverbs chapter 3, there's a, a proverb here that I thought profound um, as it relates to what we were just thinking about. Proverbs chapter 3, starting verse 1. My son, forget not my law, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and long life and peace shall they add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them about your neck. Write them upon the table of your heart. Those words mercy and truth, we don't have time to go and think about them for a long time. But mercy, that's the word chesed. It means covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, it means loyalty. And the word truth, this is the word for faithfulness, for trustworthiness. So Solomon he tells his son don't let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Don't let them get away. Keep them close. Be loyal. Be faithful. Tie them around your neck. Keep them, write them on the table of your heart. You should be a loyal and a faithful person. Contrasted with Esau. Esau did. They had a responsibility. They should have stood up for their brother Jacob, but they didn't. And therefore they incurred God's judgment. But similarly, are we ever tempted when there's that person that just really... Oh, they just really treat us wrong. They really frustrate us. Is it ever a temptation to be happy when they meet some sort of calamity in their life? When they stub their toe as they walk around the table? When they trip and are embarrassed? When something bad happens to them? Maybe you're not like me, but that's a temptation, isn't it? To be excited when we see our enemy have a little failure. Colton? Yeah, exactly. Hmm. You know, we've got to be very careful of celebrating the sin and the judgment that other people have. Not only that, but we've got to beware of boasting of our own selves. That got Esau in trouble. He was boasting about himself, and he met the same fate that Jacob met. Uh, beware of taking what's not yours. Should they have been in the city stealing all the spoil? No, that probably wasn't a very good idea. And beware of violence, hatred, anger toward another. These things are not what God has called us to. Like we sang in the song, Micah 6:8, quoting this passage: He's shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justly, that means to do what is right, to love mercy. That means to have a heart of compassion toward the people around you, both your friends and your foes, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So like Solomon charged his son, let me charge you. Don't let loyalty and faithfulness forsake you. Be a loyal person, unwaveringly loyal, even if people backstab you. Remain loyal. Show them the love of Christ. Remain faithful, because the one who's been forgiven much If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins have been forgiven, we have much forgiveness to offer to others. Any closing thoughts, comments? John? Say it a little louder. I can't quite hear you. You're good. It's good. That's right. So Jesus, the only innocent one to be punished, on huh? He took our sins on himself and then bore God's just wrath. Yeah. It's good. Other comments? Excellent. Well, then, Lord willing, next week, we will dive into the second part of the book, verses 15 through 21, the victory that God has coming for Jacob. But let's close in prayer, shall we?